Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. Last we left off, a dozen men rode with Johnny Graham and Lewis Parker to a farm filled with dead horses from the aftermath of a shootout. Two men lay dead in the dirt, John Payne and Hampton Blevins. Lewis Parker, after the group burnt the ranch to the ground, wrote to swear out the murder of the two boys against James Dunning Tewksbury. George Wilson would soon put in an arson complaint against the burial party. Welcome to the Pleasant Valley War Part 2. Bill Graham, the 21-year-old half-brother of John and Tom, left his cabin one morning on the 17th of August 1887, one week after the Blevins and Payne were buried at the Middleton Ranch. He never made it to his destination, wherever that may be. He stumbled back through the Graham's door a few hours after leaving. He was weak from the blood loss, which made it difficult for him to keep hold of his intestines that were spilling from his side. Al Rose and Bob Sixby patched him up as well as they could, washing his bowels and sewing the torn skin with needle and thread. But everyone who looked at him concurred. This would be a fatal wound. Even if the bleeding were to stop, his perforated bowels practically assured the wound would become infested. Bill was saved from that, for he died the next day. Before he passed, he managed to tell them his story. He was ambushed on the trail by nine or ten men. Those he knew and could get a look at, John and Ed and Jim Tewksbury, Jim Roberts, John Edmondson, Herbert Bishop, and Joe Boyer. Ed Tewksbury fired the first shot from behind a tree, 40 paces away. This was the shot that hit his bowels. As he reached for his pistol, he was shot in the arm. 20 shots were fired at him. Someone shouted that he would no longer be harmed if the Grahams left the county. Who shot Bill is not as clear as the Grahams would like to believe. Bob Sixby was the first to question the account. The bullet that had hit Bill came from behind him. If Bill had indeed been hit from behind, how, how could he be sure who actually fired, especially if the group all fired at him as he claimed? The area that he was shot in also questions the validity of the story, not like the area that he actually got hit at, but as in like where he was shot, the, the physical location. The grass there was not high enough to hide a man kneeling, and a man laying in the grass would have easily been seen from atop a horse, especially with the upward slope that Bill was going. One man may be able to conceal himself, sure, but it would be almost impossible for a large group to, given the openness and lack of large trees. Of course, all the men that Bill accused denied being present that morning. In fact, someone totally unconnected to Pleasant Valley up until this point took responsibility for shooting Bill Graham. Deputy Sheriff James D. Houck, a Civil War veteran, reported to a local lawman that he had shot Bill in self-defense. The way Houck would arrest someone would be to study. He would learn their habits, and once he was confident he could predict their comings and goings, he would rise before dawn and take up a position where he could surprise them as they rose for their day. That's what he was doing, lurking just at the edge of the Graham's land, waiting for Johnny Graham to appear from the dark and serve the man a warrant. 
At dawn, a horseman approached his position from the direction of the Graham Ranch. Hauk stepped out from behind the tree, aimed his rifle at the rider. Throw up, Hauk called. The horseman looked startled, and Hauk realized that it was not Johnny. Hauk raised his rifle skyward and announced that he had the wrong man. I haven't, Billy said, as he pulled out his own pistol and fired a wild shot. Hauk dropped the barrel down and returned fire, the single shot mortally wounding Bill Graham. Now, while he was a hated man in certain circles for his, let's say, aggressive methods, no one could fault Hauk as a liar. Curiously, both Ed Tewksbury and Jim Hauk wore mustaches, had dark hair, dark complexion, and both were quite of a similar build. In the dark, it was possible Bill Graham fired at who he thought was an armed Ed Tewksbury attempting to get his brother. Two days later, County Sheriff William J. Mulvenon left for Pleasant Valley, gathering up a posse as he passed through Flagstaff. News had not reached him about Bill Graham's death. Instead, the arrest warrants he was serving were for the murder of Payne and Blevins. The posse arrived at the Tewksbury Ranch, but the brothers had already left for the Sierra Ancha Mountains. Only Marianne, John's wife, and the patriarch James Dunning Tewksbury were home. And of course, they weren't willing to cooperate with the sheriff that was hunting their family. Now, up in these mountains, these particular mountains, there are ruins of a long-gone people who lived in the land before even the Apache arrived. The Tewksbury boys knew the area exceptionally well and would often use it when hunting or, more to the point, being hunted. Word spread around Pleasant Valley that the law was in town. Andrew Blevins normally made it a point to avoid lawmen, but his brother's murder demanded action. He rode to the Graham Ranch, and together they rode to meet with Melvenon. Andrew told the sheriff straight up that a war would start if the Tewksburys were not taken into custody. George Newton also met with the sheriff and took him out to show him the burnt remains of his ranch. The posse did have a win with some limited contact with the Tewksburys via a messenger who informed the posse that the brothers were not leaving the settlement. The sheriff decided that it really wasn't worth the costs that were accumulating for the county to have everyone camped out there for what would be an indeterminate amount of time. They returned home. This, as one might expect, provoked the Blevins and the Grahams to resort to some good old-fashioned frontier vigilante justice. The two families began to plan their retribution. John Tewksbury rose in the early morning of 1st of September, 1887. John and his brothers had returned home quietly after the posse left. Marianne was pregnant with their second child, and John had his 31st birthday coming up that Saturday. During the previous night, something had happened to one of the horses, and it wasn't present that morning. Bill Jacobs, a friend and a business partner of John's, agreed to go with him to search out the horse. They were sure to arm themselves before leaving the cabin. They followed the tracks across the creek that wrapped the south and west of the ranch. Advancing southward through the brush, the horse could be heard further in, near Rock Creek. The terrain and scrub greatly impaired their vision. 75 yards in from the first creek bed, they turned westward and began walking along the north bank of Rock Creek. 
They were going up the canyon when they heard a single gunshot. John Tewksbury doubled over and fell under the ground, dead from a shot to the back. Jacobs froze. Men silently emerged from the rocks and brush behind him. Jacobs knew some of the men, Andrew Blevins, Johnny Graham, and Tom Graham. Jacobs lifted his hands into the air as the men approached, each with their weapons trained on him. Closer now, one of the men clubbed his head and he fell to the ground. Clawing at the dirt, trying to crawl away, one gunman grabbed a nearby rock and brought it down onto Jacobs' head, again and again, until Jacobs finally stopped moving. Johnny Grahams pulled out a knife. Grabbing a fistful of John Tewksbury's hair, he began to cut at the hairline. Tom called to him and said, Don't be a heathen. Johnny then let go of Tewksbury's head. The group broke up. Andrew Blevins took his men to Holbrook, but Johnny and Tom Graham weren't done. They started towards the direction of the Tewksbury Ranch. By most retellings, there were half the settlement at the Tewksbury Ranch that morning, though in reality, it was probably less. Just the immediate Tewksbury family, Ed and Jim, Lydia, 12-year-old Thomas Schultz, 11-year-old Gus Schultz, 6-year-old Parker, and 3-year-old Walter. Though not mentioned by the witnesses, there is a very high chance that Marianne was there with her three-year-old daughter, Bertha, as well. The family heard the gunshot that took John's life. Thomas Schultz peered out, and they heard more gunshots ringing from the woods, much closer than the first. A bullet hit the barn. Thomas slammed the door and fell back into the barn. Eight hours. For the next eight hours... Gunshots rang through the air out of the trees that lined the creek bed to the southwest of the Tewksbury Ranch. The guns would fall silent as the sun set. The Grahams had run out of ammunition at least. That's what the occupants of the bullet-ridden barn hoped. Whether they did or not, the Grahams left under the cover of night. Now of course, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. There's a legend that says that during the hail of the bullets, the Tewksbury women marched out shovels in hand. The assailants held fire until they buried their men and returned to the cabin. Of course, it's all bollocks. Um, it appeared in a story about five years after the fact, in 1892. Now, back in reality, we have the Tewksbury's who would not sleep that night. They didn't actually know who had been firing at them. Of course, if it had been the Apaches, they were known to set fire to cabins as people slept, shooting at them as they ran for their lives. Estella Graham Hill would later reveal that, had it not been for Tom, Johnny Graham would have certainly have set fire to that cabin. Women and children and all. Night passed and John and Bill did not return the following day. The Tewksbury's kept their movements limited, fearful of a follow-up attack. It was the third day, with no John and Bill, when the family noticed vultures circling a quarter of a mile away. Ed took the responsibility and set out to have a look already fearing that it was John that the vultures were feasting on. He was correct, but the scene was a lot more visceral than he expected. The vultures had ripped his body apart. Strips of sinew and flesh were being fought over. It would take a couple of days for a JP to get out there and conduct a coroner's report on the bodies at the scene of the crime. During the inquest, jury members gagged through descriptions of the bodies. The proceedings were over, and there was nothing left to do except shovel the now rotted remains into a coffee tin and bury them where they lay. 
Andrew Blevins stopped at James Edward Shelley's camp on their way to Holbrook. The night of September 3rd, the party was loud and boasting about the murder that they had just committed. The other Blevins were already in Holbrook. It was probably their best chance at laying low. Before the railroad, Holbrook was little more than a small cluster of Mexican homes. When the railroad came to town, it bloomed rapidly. Soon it was the hub of sheep herders and cowboys, pockets full of cash after selling livestock. Saloons sprouted up at over every corner of the street, full of booze and debauchery. It was a notoriously lawless area. In 1886, 26 men were killed by gunfire in a town of only 250 full-time residences. Once in Holbrook, however, Andrew made it impossible to go unnoticed. Sunday morning, he arrived in town and announced to the crowds in the street that he had just killed John Tewksbury and some other man that he really didn't know. Andrew's reputation preceded him. News of his arrival caused many a concerned citizens to go to the Apache County Sheriff Commodore Perry Owens and demand that he do something about it. Sheriff Owens was a quiet man who didn't drink, he didn't gamble or womanize, but don't let that fool you, he was by far not a pacifist. He wore his pistols holstered with the handle turned forward as he preferred to cross his arms to draw his pistols, very Hollywood-like. Under the law, he had killed dozens of men and wounded dozens more. He was credited as single-handedly driving out, killing, or jailing every desperado or bandit in his county. Now, Owens. Owens was familiar with Andrew Blevins. He'd sent him a letter requesting his surrender due to an outstanding warrant for stealing horses. And on September 4th, a group of men huddled into the sheriff's office, eager to lend a hand with arresting Andrew. Owens thanked them, but told them to leave it to him. The Blevins lived in a house next to the blacksmith shop. The Blevins inside the house were Mary Atkinson, Andrew, John Black and his wife, Eva, and their baby, 16-year-old Artemisia, and 15-year-old Samuel Houston. Moose Roberts, a business associate and a friend of the family, Amanda Gladden and her two daughters were also there with the family as they finished their Sunday supper. Owens walked along the porch, peering into the windows. He could see Andrew Blevins and the other men in the house. Owens knocked on the door. Eva Blevins answered the door, baby in her arms. Owens asked if Andy was in. She called out for him. Andrew opened the door, only barely peeking out from the door. Owens told him that he had a warrant. The warrant for stealing the horses he had written about some time ago. Andrew tried to stall before pulling out a pistol, screaming he wouldn't go. Owens was quick on the trigger, firing his Winchester held in his hip. Andrew collapsed, the shot going through his gut. He was still alive, though. John Black Blevins jerked open the door from the left of Owens and shot at the sheriff. The bullet missed. Owens pivoted, returning fire and hitting John in the shoulder. Andrew was pulling himself along the ground through the house, gun still in hand. Owens lined up a shot through at the wall through which Andrew's shoulders would have been. Owens pulled the trigger and Andrew stopped moving. Stepping back now from the porch, Owens reloaded, his eyes scanning the windows for any movement. Moose Roberts jumped through the side window, gun in hand. He held his back to the wagon 
and it didn't provide any protection as Owen's bullet ripped through the weak board and tore through Robert's back, shattering his shoulder and a lung. 15-year-old Samuel Houston Blevins tried his hand at shooting the sheriff with John's six-shooter. Mary, his mother, tried to pull him back. Before any shots could be made, she screamed at Owens to spare him. He was just a boy. Sam raised the pistol. Before he could squeeze the trigger, though, Owens fired his rifle and hit the kid in the upper body. All of this happened in less than a minute. Three lay dead or dying on the floor, one wounded but alive. Satisfied that there was no more resistance, he laid his rifle across his arms. Within mere days of killing John Tewksbury, Andrew Blevins lay on the floor, begging for a bullet to give him a quick and painless death. Saturday morning, 17th of September, 1887. Joe Ellenwood, Henry Middleton, along with others in the employ of the Grahams, were travelling through the hills that lay to the east of the Tewksbury land, about a mile from the Tewksbury house. Jim Roberts saw their movements through the pines on the hills and rushed to the ranch to inform Jim and Ed Tewksbury. Miguel Apodaca, who I mentioned in the very end of part one, was at his house on his ranch when he heard the sounds of gunfire ring through the valley around 7.30 in the morning. About 25 shots were fired within an hour. A couple of men raced to the Graham Ranch and got Ed and Al Rose to help them with a couple of severely wounded men. Middleton had been shot in the left leg, and Ellen Wood had taken a bullet to the hip. Standing ready with loaded weapons, Jim Roberts and Ed Tewksbury watched the men as they carried off their wounded. Ellenwood's condition stabilised and he made a full recovery. Middleton did not. Two days later, he was dead. After the death of John and Bill, anything that could be perceived as a threat had the Tewksbury's assaulting with extreme prejudice. The following Wednesday, Melvenon and his deputies arrived in the valley. 3am in the following morning, 14 members of the posse rode through the valley and took up position at Perkins's half-built store. The sheriff stood waiting out in the open. An hour later, a small group of six men from the posse were passing closely by the Graham and Rose ranches. Confident that they had been spotted, they made for the rendezvous at the Perkins's store. Johnny Graham and Charlie Blevins mounted their horses and followed the posse at a safe distance. Near the Perkins store, they slowly circled around, drawing closer and closer. When they were within range, Malvenon stepped out onto the street, shotgun in hand, and called for the boys to throw up their hands. The two wheeled their horses around to flee. Graham reached for his pistol, as they did. Malvenon threw lead at them. Graham's horse dropped from a shot to the neck. Johnny jumped from the horse and ran over to the cover of the trees that lined the path near the store. Blevins, still on his horse, reached for his Winchester strapped to his saddle. The posse were active by this time sending a volley of fire his way. He fell forward, face first into the dirt, with eight bullet holes in him. Malvenon fired his shotgun again, and tore chunks out of Graham's right arm. Another ball ran through his ribs, just above his heart. Blevins was still moving. J.D. Houck charged out, raising his gun at the man. Joe McKinney grabbed Houck's arm and pulled him down to the ground, telling him not to shoot Blevins. Howe insisted that he wasn't going to unless he made a play. Blevins' legs were jerking. When they rolled him over, he was dead. 
Graham was moved to the shade and given some water. Melvenon crouched next to him and asked him why he didn't put his hands up when he was told. Didn't you know me, he asked. Graham shook his head in response. Osmar Flake, along with some more posse members, joined them, and Melvenon asked Johnny if he recognised Flake. Johnny gave an affirmative and spoke briefly with Flake before Melvenon stepped back in, saying, You can't live but a short time, and may go at any time. You better tell me if Tom is in the valley. If he is, I will send a man for him. He can stay with you while you live, and then ride off. I will not arrest him. Tom was nearby, of course, hiding out just a bit up the road with Lewis Parker. Johnny insisted that Tom wasn't in the valley. He would slip in and out of conscious before dying an hour later. One of the posse, probably not convinced by Johnny, climbed a tree and took a spyglass to the horizon looking for Tom and Lewis. He found them, preparing to leave. Some of the posse were keen to race down to the ranch and catch Tom and Lewis before they could get away, but Mel Venon held them back. He knew Tom would not surrender peacefully, and he wanted to avoid any unnecessary deaths. Graham and Parker waited at the ranch for a moment, hoping that Johnny would ride back. When he failed to arrive, they kicked their mounts into action and rode. A ways up the trail, they took defensive positions as they waited conflict with the following posse. Night fell and they were certain that the posse wasn't tracking them. Cautiously, they rode back to the ranch. If Johnny had survived his encounter, he would have gone back to the ranch. Graham quietly called towards the house. Opening the door, he found only Joe Ellenwood and his wife. Johnny was gone. Tom, Graham and Lewis Parker would leave the valley once and for all. Mel Venon had in fact sent out a posse to the valley, not after Tom, but after the J.P. Meadows, as he was required to write up the bodies. After the course of 13 weeks, 12 men in the valley had been shot dead, one missing and four wounded. Henry Middleton had died of his wounds he had received at the Tewksbury's ranch. Meadows ruled he had died as a result of gunshots fired from the Tewksbury's. After fleeing the valley, Tom Graham bunkered down at the Prescott Hotel and set about arranging control of Johnny's estate. Lewis Parker went into hiding. Once Tom had Johnny's estate assorted, he moved south, choosing the small town of Tepe to make a new home. Soon after he arrived, he married a woman called Annie Melton and set about publishing his side of the story in the Phoenix, Arizonian. October 1887, Graham willingly went to Prescott Sheriff to turn himself in. The sheriff, having no warrant for the arrest, let him go. Graham would tell him his part of the gun battles. He insisted that he wasn't present for any of it, that he was away in Phoenix when Hamp Blevins and John Payne were killed. He wasn't anywhere near the Tewksbury ranches when Ellenwood and Milton had been shot. In the most recent shootout, he had been shooing horses when he'd sent his brother Johnny to talk to Melvenon's posse to see if there were any warrants for him, because he of course would surrender peacefully if there were. He went so far as to say that he had never met the Blevins, save for Mart when they once talked when he was passing through looking for stolen horses and such. It was of his opinion that the events that transpired in Pleasant Valley 
were nothing short of a conspiracy to drive men out of their ranches by richer cattle companies. The Tewksburys were just as eager to shape their narrative. They wrote letters to territorial papers that insisted that they were the innocents who acted in self-defense when attacked. The Tewksburys believed in a conspiracy as well, but one that concerned itself with wiping the Tewksbury family from existence. Like, killing them, not going back in time and killing their ancestors or anything. Just killing them here and now. The trial for the burning of the Middleton Ranch saw the thief William Bonner, a victim to vigilante justice, his bloated body discovered mid-October 1887. The Arizona Weekly Journal Miner speculated that he had been killed, quote, by members of the Tewksbury gang as he belonged to the Graham fa faction. Al Rose also saw trouble related to the burning of the ranch and possibly connected to the Tewksbury's revenge. Rose arrived at the Houdon Ranch in early fall. Houdon had been acquired by the Graham brothers and Lewis, Lewis Negelin and John Waitley were employed to oversee the Graham's cattle. As Rose approached the cabin, he was caught by a group of nine men armed and masked. Long coats obscured their frames and they all held rifles or shotguns in their hands. Rose tried sprinting towards the cabin, shouting at the men inside. The men had covered his escape. Rose stopped and threw up his hands. The masked men filled Rose's body with hot lead. Nagelin and Watley witnessed the murder. They went to step out, but the men pointed their guns at them. Retreating back into the cabin, they peered through the gun ports and watched the masked men disappear into the bush. With the burial of Al Rose, the violence of Pleasant Valley died down over the winter of 1887 and 1888. Ed Tewksbury and John Rhodes would have one altercation during this time, though it was over some drink at a saloon. John and another patron would shoot their pistols at one another. John was wounded in the hand, and the two other men were hit with John's bullets. No casualties. August 1888, two weeks after an Apache outbreak drove Pleasant Valley settlers to abandon their homes, scouts discovered Jake Lawfer wounded in his cabin. Lawfer had set out to look for his horses and was shot behind a tree. Later that same day, two other scouts were shot at by two men who were seen riding straight for the deserted cabin of Lizzie Rose. They chased their assailants but lost them in the sudden downpour. Lawfer survived his wound, but his arm was left permanently disabled. He didn't believe he was shot by Apaches, but instead by Jamie Stoat. Stoat was the last rancher in the area that, is, that had his hand in the black market trade, and Lawfer was sure that Stoat was getting revenge for larceny charge that he had called out upon him. 11th of August, Stout walked out to get some kindling. Deputy Sheriff J.D. Hauck stood beside the cabin, his rifle tracking him. As per his methods, Hauck and two other deputies waited since dawn for Stott to emerge from his home to serve him a warrant. Stott wasn't phased. He offered the men some breakfast, in fact, before leaving with them, handcuffs over their wrists. See, there'd been two other men visiting Scott who also had warrants, so they took it as an opportunity to bag them as well. A chain threaded between them, Finally, the chain went through around their ankles. Hauk would later swear that he and his deputies had been overtaken on the trail. 
A group of masked men demanded at gunpoint that they hand over the three prisoners to them. There was no record of what happened after that, just the results. From the small pine tree, the three men's bodies were hanged. It's likely that Stott was taunted and tortured by the masked men, as he had a red handkerchief around his neck before it was tied, and it appeared his windpipe had been crushed before the rope was around his neck. Hauk refused to concede compliance with the events and would fight anyone who dared question it. Within days of the lynching, Hauk was standing at the doctor's waiting room. Ed Rogers, one of the hash knife cowboys, burst through the door and accused Hauk of hanging Jamie Stott. Hauk protested and Rogers called him a liar. They stood arguing for a good while before Rogers realized that he was outmatched. Slowly, he reached down to his pistol and tapped the release that sent all six shells clinking to the floor. He then backed out of the office. Hauk remained in place, hand on revolver, until he was satisfied Rogers wasn't coming back. Gun reloaded. Third of December, 1887, grand jury handed out indictments to 14 men in connection with the murders in Pleasant Valley. Accused of murdering Hamp Blevins and John Payne in the Middleton Ranch were Jim Tewksbury, Ed Tewksbury, Joseph Boyer, James Roberts, George Newton, Jake Lawfer, and George Wagner. Accused of murdering John Tewksbury and Bill Jacobs near Tewksbury Ranch was Lewis Parker, Tom Graham, Miguel Apodaca, William Bonner, Joseph Ellenwood, William Gould, and Thomas, that is Bob Carrington. The thing is, it was a total mess. Three of the seven residences of Pleasant Valley, who now stood accused of the murders of John Tewksbury and Bill Jacobs, had already been tried and acquitted for the burning of Middleton Ranch. Of the 35 called as witnesses before the grand jury in the murder of Tewksbury and Jacobs, six were already facing charges in the murder of Bill Graham. And of those accused of killing Bill, several had previously testified in St. John's against John and Tom Graham for grand larceny. It wasn't that they lacked witnesses. The witnesses that they had weren't likely to present clear and convincing evidence. All four cases were scheduled for June 1888, but they were put on hold until November. Nine more defense witnesses, including law enforcement officers, were subpoenaed in the charge of the murder against Ed and Jim Tewksbury, Boyer, Roberts, Newton, Lawfer, and Wagner. In November, the cases continued until the following June, 1889. Tom Graham had to leave Annie in Tempe. Within days of their wedding, and a few months after that, their daughter, Arvilla, was born while he was away in court. Jim Tewksbury, weak with consumption, insisted on making the journey. He would die early December 1888. A week after his passing, Ed's friend, John Rhodes, married Mary Ann Tewksbury in Pleasant Valley. Graham lived for the next five years, assuming a quiet life and keeping a relatively low profile, working several rural acres. A year after losing our villa to dehydration, Annie gave birth to their second daughter, Estella, who lived. Graham would eventually stop carrying a gun completely. Robert Bowen had built the Tempe Hotel in 1890 and invested in cattle. 
He just so happened to keep his herd in Pleasant Valley. Based on reputation alone, he hired one of the best cowboys in the area, John Rhodes. Late July 1892, on a cattle drive from Pleasant Valley to Tempe, Bowen mentioned the Graham Ranch. Rhodes gave no reaction at the mention of the name. Tom Graham rose early on the 2nd of August. He loaded his wagon with some barley and set out for a mill three miles away. Along the road, he heard sounds of horses coming up his rear. In the corner of his eye, he saw two riders. They had rifles raised towards him. Graham tried to jump as the first shot went off. The bullet tore through him. The pressure cavity caused by the slug exploded outward below his jawline, ripping the muscle and sinew from the bone. His head snapped back violently, and his body flopped to the ground. He had been hit in the top of his spine. He could only lay there, waiting for the kill shot to come. It would never come. The lead gunman, face covered, approached Graham and took a look at him. Without saying a word, he holstered his rifle and galloped away. Two girls a little down the road heard the gunshot and saw a dark cowboy race past them soon after. M.A. Cravath ran towards the commotion and was the first to find Graham. Others nearby quickly gathered around and moved him to the Cummings house on a rocking chair on the porch. Dr. Fenhart arrived and there really wasn't much that he could do except make Graham comfortable. Except for his head, Graham could not move. Dr. Scott Helm arrived and Tom winked at his friend. Helm was frank with Tom about his injuries. Well, Tom, he said, they've got you this time. About an hour later, a handful of men gathered close to Graham. Among them were Charlie Dutchett, John J.J. Hickey, and John Forsey. Dutchett, Graham's longtime associate and right-hand man, was perhaps the only true friend that Graham had. He also loathed the Tewksburys. 30-year-old J.J. Hickey was a justice of the peace in Phoenix. Forsey, a 33-year-old merchant, was also a J.P. He was determined to write out the murder complaint on Graham's behalf. Hickey asked Graham if he recognized him. Graham nodded. He asked who shot him. Was it Ed Tewksbury? A shake of the head. Who shot you? Row, sir. Tom rasped out. Rose, Rhodes. Two, three. Was it Rhodes or Tewksbury? Both, Tom told them. Tom then described how he had seen them raise their guns at him before shooting. He asked Annie to bring their baby daughter close so that he could kiss her goodbye. Annie also leant forward and kissed her husband, but recoiled in shock when she met his lips. They were cold. He's dying, she screamed out. Within an hour, he lost consciousness, and around three in the afternoon, Tom Graham died. John Rhodes was swiftly placed under arrest. Rhodes was not known to have any quarrel with Graham, and his name was never associated with the violent conflicts of Pleasant Valley. He was not hard to find in town, as he made no effort to resist arrest. With Rhodes in custody, Charlie McFarland 
who would later run for sheriff, led a posse of 30 citizens to capture Tewksbury. After several hours of tracking him, McFarland's horse fell and the posse gave up the chase, convinced that once Tewksbury made it to the mountains, they would never find him. Public anger on the dusty streets grew more intense, to the point where Sheriff and his deputies began to fear that a lynching attempt was imminent. Sheriff Montgomery decided to immediately move Rhodes out of the Tempe jail to the county jail in Phoenix. John Rhodes was brought before a judge on the afternoon of Friday the 4th of August, just two days after Graham's murder. He confidently pleaded not guilty of the charge, and following a legal protocol, Justice of the Peace Willis Oren Houston scheduled a preliminary hearing for the 9 a.m., the following Monday to determine whether the territory had enough evidence to establish probable cause. 10 a.m. Monday morning, 56 witnesses were summoned. Annie Graham attended the hearing with her daughter Estella, both dressed in black. John Rhodes sat emotionless. It was only when Charlie Dutchett entered the courtroom that Rhodes showed any reaction at all. The two men instantly locked eyes and Dutchett glared at Rose, who returned the look with equal venom and never turned away until Dutchett took his seat. Over two days, the prosecution failed to persuasively tie Rhodes to the murder. The thing is, with all the witnesses that they had, none of them could actually place him at the scene. In the hours after the trial, Annie raged with bitterness, screaming at Rhodes. The following morning, she wasn't present, but walked through the doors later that afternoon, her child left with her mother. Her veil was thrown back so the court could see her face. She took a seat near the front. A witness ran a piece of chalk over the blackboard as he described the layout of Tempe streets when Annie lurched at Rhodes. He felt the 45 Colt, the one that had belonged to Annie's dead husband, press hard into his back. Partially concealed by her handbag, she did not hesitate. Annie pulled the trigger. The hammer snapped down, catching the cloth of the handbag. The hammer hit the firing pin without enough force to let the bullet fly. Rhodes' life had been spared by a piece of cloth. Rhodes twisted around and grabbed Annie's hand. The sheriff and several others seized her from behind as others pulled Rhodes away towards the judge's bench. The audience straightaway fled out the doors. Annie managed to shove the pistol between her knees and locked her legs together as Lawman grappled to retrieve the weapon. She screamed at them to let her go. Let me shoot. Oh God, he killed my husband. I have no one. They aren't doing anything. Somebody help me. She cried out as she was dragged from the courtroom. Bailiffs sealed the doors. John Rhodes sat back, pale and nervous, his composure now gone. Annie was prohibited from attending the court from that point on. For five days, the defense presented a string of witnesses who accounted for John Rhodes' activities from the moment he arose from his cot that morning until he was arrested later the day and insisted that he had never been near the scene of the crime. The final witness called by the defense was John Rhodes himself. His testimony was about his activities and locations that morning, confirmed to those of the previous witnesses. Although he only knew the general time by the sun, I did not shoot Graham, Rhodes declared, 
empathetically. I had nothing to do with the killing. I know nothing about it. I saw Tewksbury either on the 7th or the 8th of July and have not seen him since. He never learned until recently where Graham lived and it was only because he was in that neighbourhood herding cattle. The defence rested its case. Ten days after that, the judge declared, After carefully weighing the evidence, I find the alibi complete and therefore discharge the prisoner. John Rhodes was a free man, but he refused to walk out of the courtroom. At his request, he stayed one more night in the jail before riding back with some heavily armed friends from Pleasant Valley. Why were there heavily armed residents of the valley there, besides, of course, moral support? For that, let's look at Ed Tewksbury, whose own trial was about to begin. Sam Finley, a bartender who moonlights as a deputy constable, got the assignment to serve Ed Tewksbury an arrest warrant. His plan was to ride into Pleasant Valley alone and unarmed. Entering the valley, he simply asked where he could find Ed, and was pointed to George Wilson's ranch. He told Wilson why he was there, and asked where Ed was. Wilson replied that Ed was five miles out on a horse ranch. Finley asked George if he wouldn't mind retrieving Tewksbury for him while he waited at Wilson's ranch. Wilson returned four hours later with Ed Tewksbury. A lynch mob had formed to intercept Tewksbury as he arrived at the Tempe jail, so they diverted him to a town 170 miles south. News of this lynch mob reached Pleasant Valley, and the next day, nine men rode into Tempe, each armed with rifles, shotguns, and an assortment of pistols by their sides. They made it very clear that Tewksbury would be protected there, and they made a very public declaration that they supported their friend. Now, Phoenix law enforcement was prepared for vigilantes. 17 well-armed men were stationed around the jailhouse and scores of officers roamed the streets in the blocks surrounding the jail. Now, this, of course, didn't stop the mobs from prowling and shouting for vengeance. Now, to give you an idea of how spooked the law enforcement were in this moment, the sheriff threw Ed a pistol and told him to defend himself if the mobs happened to overrun them and break into the jail. At dawn, the mobs died down and went away. John Rhodes was reportedly seen riding daily through the streets of Mesa City, east of Tempe, in the company of three other men. They were all heavily armed. Some residents speculated that the purpose of his high visibility in the area. Graham's murderer had ridden directly through the main street of Mesa City in his escape. Although witnesses in Mesa City had already been subpoenaed for Ed Tewksbury's hearing, a well-armed Rhodes may have been riding up and down the streets between Tempe and Mesa City to silence anyone else along the murderer's route who might wish to come forward as a witness. J.P. Horatio Wharton convened the preliminary hearing 29th of August, 1892. The list of the witnesses who testified against Rhodes were called again. The defense anticipated the prosecution's strategy and presented a different tactic. One court had already found Rhodes's alibi persuasive enough to drop all the charges. Therefore, they argued, if compelling enough evidence existed suggesting that Rhodes wasn't present when Graham killed, then the dying man's testimony that he was shot by both Rhodes and Tewksbury could not be considered reliable. 
So they worked to poke holes in the testimonies of those who claimed to have seen Ed Tewksbury, or at least a man closely resembling Tewksbury, fleeing the scene of the crime. They questioned every little thing to throw as much doubt and confusion amongst the witnesses. What colour hair? Was it a light hat or a dark hat? What kind of clothing? What colour was the clothing? Was the horse a roan or a bay? What kind of markings were on the horses? What kind of colours were the markings? Additional arms or supplies on the horses. And you know what? It worked. The witnesses were less than coherent when presenting their cases. They even disagreed on times, creating enough reasonable doubt. The defense argued that if they were to believe all the witnesses to be 100% correct, then Ed Tewksbury would have ridden a herd of horses to account for the differences, had spare changes of clothes that he changed into multiple times over, carried a razor to shave while galloping a speed sufficient enough to get to Pleasant Valley all within the same day. Closing their arguments after six days of testimony, the defense declared that while it was certainly a dark-colored man wearing a light hat with a red band upon a bay-colored horse that had killed Graham on the 2nd of August, most could not definitely say it was Ed Tewksbury. Of the three reliable witnesses that claimed to have seen him, the defense threw at them the case of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts first John W. Webster, in which... If the evidence presented equally persuasive that the defendant committed a crime, that he was not present to commit the crime, proof of burden rests with alibi to raise reasonable doubt that the defendant committed the crime. Wharton found the testimonies weak of those who insisted that Ed Tewksbury were in Pleasant Valley on the day that Graham was murdered. None of the witnesses could conclusively testify how they knew the precise day and time that they saw Tewksbury in Pleasant Valley. I have examined every authority that has been cited, he concluded, and after careful consideration of the matter, both as the evidence and the law, I believe that there is one duty left for me to perform, and that is to say, under the law and the evidence, I believe that there is sufficiently of evidence to convince me that the defendant is guilty. 2nd of December, the grand jury handed down a murder indictment against Ed Tewksbury. He was given the chance to enter a plea, but his attorneys chose instead to file a plea of abatement, challenging the legality of the court's action and dismissing part of the regularly consulted grand jury and convening a special grand jury. Now, this is interesting because the reason the judge organized a special grand jury was because they couldn't find enough locals who were sufficiently impartial i.e. the judge had done this specifically as a favour to them so that it wouldn't be a straight-up guilty, 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 full stop. It was declared illegal, and the time and place was shuffled around so that it was all then legal. The formal trial of Ed Tewksbury started mid-July 1893, but didn't meet until mid-December. By territorial law, the defendant was allowed to make a statement before the grand jury began deliberation. Ed had declined. The next day, the jury, which swung back and forth during the night, announced a little before 3pm in the afternoon the verdict, guilty of first-degree murder. The judge set the sentencing for the following Thursday, 30th of December. The clerk for the court was working overtime on his paperwork, wanting to finish it all before the holidays, when he made a discovery Ed Tewksbury never filed a plea. 
Now, bear with me for a second because it all has to do with old uh, territory statutes, but the Arizona Territory Statute allowed defendants one of three options when entering a plea. There was guilty, not guilty, or request of a demurrer to the indictment to challenge the legality of the proceedings. Tewksbury's attorneys had chosen the third option, and while the third district court adjudicated the plea for abatement and then the plea to change the venue, the clerk of that court failed to keep track of the fact that the demurrer was settled. Tewksbury had not entered a formal plea to the charge. Defense immediately filed for a formal notion to arrest judgment and open a new trial. The territory had no other choice than to concede. It is a little ironic that the court had failed to follow the law. It wasn't until the 2nd of January 1895 when he received his retrial. This retrial went almost the exact same as the last one. Until the verdict, that is. This time they were stuck in a deadlock for at least three days. The judge had no choice but to discharge the jury. On the strength of his good behaviour, Ed Tewksbury was allowed to go on bail. $10,000 it was set at. The following month, Judge Jerry Millay dismissed the case at the suggestion of the County Board of Supervisors. This case had already cost the county over $20,000. Alright, this is the part with the sappy ending where they do the whole based on true story movie as to what happened to them after the big event just before the credits roll. John Black Blevins, the only survivor of the Blevins massacre in Holbrook, was convicted for attempted murder of Sheriff Owens. He was freed before serving his time and reportedly became a respectable citizen. He was even hired as a deputy sheriff in Holbrook, serving the very office that had gunned down his family. How heartwarming. John Rhodes also went on to have a career in law enforcement, becoming the oldest serving Arizona Ranger. Ed Tewksbury enjoyed somewhat of a rehabilitation. While on bail, he was unanimously elected to a two-year term as constable in Globe City. Within a few years, he married Bralia Lopez, who had five children of her own. They had three more together. While in his 40s, he suffered a stroke while working in a mine. His health declined until he contracted pneumonia. In 1904, another stroke took his life. John Rhodes would live on for another 15 years, passing away in January 1919, outlived by his wife, Mary Ann Tewksbury Rhodes, who passed away at 88 years old in 1950. Lewis Parker, last of the Grahams, fled the territory completely in 1887 to southern New Mexico. He found prosperity and respect as a cattle hand. His mother Mary, Tom and Johnny's sister, moved to live with him before she passed away in 1912. Parker made it to 50, passing away in 1921. J.D. Houck moved with his family south to Cave Creek, Arizona. He ran a store and herded sheep until March 1921. After feeding his chickens one morning, he entered his home and announced that he had taken strychnine. He lay in bed and asked for his shoes to be removed and said that he was simply tired of living. The family called a doctor, but Howe died a few hours later. After Al Rose's murder, Lizzie Rose married a Virginian who relocated to Pleasant Valley. 
They had some kids before relocating to California. Her second husband died during the Great Depression. Three years later, in 1935, Lizzie decided she had taken up, quote, arms against the sea of troubles. Long enough. She hung herself at 72 years of age. Mary Blevins never remarried. At her request, an attorney acquired for her the pistol that Andrew Blevins carried. Residents of Holbrook report her wandering the streets lost, almost like she's looking for something. After John Rhodes's trial, Annie left with Estella and moved in with her parents in Los Angeles. She married Thomas Hagen, who died during the Spanish flu pandemic. She would be committed to an insane asylum soon after. She was with Estella in her Phoenix home when she passed away in 1961 at the age of 94. Estella married a man called Ed Converse sometime prior to the 1920s when he passed away. After that, she married her neighbor, Ben Hill, and they lived together until she passed away in 1981. Five years after John Rhodes passed, Mary Ann disclosed a secret that she held while both men were alive. Uncle Ed killed Graham to keep Papa from doing it. Rhodes had no connection to Graham except through Ed and Mary Ann. He didn't take any part in the conflicts of Pleasant Valley. Winslow Constable Joe McKinney, who later served as an Arizona Ranger with Rhodes, suggested that it was Graham himself who spurred Rhodes into action. According to McKinney, while Rhodes was in Tempe, tending to Bowen's herd, reports began to reach him from several quarters that Tom Graham had tasked Charlie Dutchett to kill him. Rhodes chose to ignore the rumors until the day he saw Graham pointing him out to Dutchett. It was Ed who spurred his horse first to get ahead of Rhodes. In doing so, he blocked his friend's aim. It was Ed who shot Graham before Rhodes could get a clear shot. And it was Ed who stayed at a scene until Rhodes had made good his escape. Then Ed did something very odd for a man of his experience. He conspicuously galloped through the main streets of Tempe and Mesa City on his flight back to Pleasant Valley. On his way back home, as people began their day, Ed charged down the middle of Main Street of Tempe, wearing a red bandana around the brim of his light-colored hat. And this may have been precisely his aim. By doing so highly visible, he drew attention away from Rhodes, who quietly resumed his daily routine. As he raced back to Pleasant Valley, Ed drew upon all his skills as a frontiersman to make the journey back to his mountain home. Stories circulated in later years that he stationed fresh horses at strategic locations and pushed each of them to their absolute limits to arrive back in Pleasant Valley on the day that Tom Graham was shot. Now, however it was that he accomplished this feat, it is known that after momentarily purchasing supplies in the early afternoon and attending a dance that evening, he retreated to solitude of the remote Highland base camp among his horses. Although he would later endure a lynching attempt, two trials, and three years in prison, Ed's alibi ultimately worked because everyone knew he could not, definitively could not have traveled 100 miles over mountainous terrain in only a matter of hours. Even experienced horsemen like Charlie Dutchett never challenged the fundamental premise of Tewksbury's defense that a man could not cover such a distance within just a few hours. 
Perhaps he had never met a man as determined and skilled as Ed Tewksbury. And that concludes the saga of Pleasant Valley. This has been the Sext and Murder podcast. Thank you for listening.